0: Good morning church. We've already had church with praise and worship, but we're going to continue to have church this morning. We're going to be reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And if you're using the Pew Bible today, it is on page 976. I'm going to give you some time to get there before I start. Okay, I don't hear as many pages flipping, so I'm assuming that we are ready. Let's get started. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. If you're a guest with us today,
1: we are so grateful to have you. Can I just say that? If you came as a result of Grace Gives, maybe maybe you got your car washed. Maybe we worked on your home. Maybe a child came to camp. I just want to say we are honored that you joined us today. We'd love to, to meet you in person right after service. Taste of grace. The pastors will be there. We'd love to, to say hello. If it's okay, I'd like to share a personal update before we get into the sermon today. As many of you know, my family had the privilege of traveling to Egypt over the last uh, 12 days to visit my extended family and to attend my cousin's wedding where i had the privilege of speaking on marriage and the gospel uh, thank you for praying for us there were uh, there were so many memories the trip was full of memories that our family will cherish for the rest of our lives our kids got to see my heritage for the first time uh, they got to see incredible amounts of cousins that they didn't know existed, and aunts and uncles, and they were kissed on both cheeks so many times, and uh, it was really a a joy. They got to see the pyramids, and the museums, and mummies, and uh, churches dating back to when Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with baby Jesus. It was really incredible, Uh, and then they got to experience, we all got to experience an authentic Egyptian wedding. There was a lot, a lot of dancing, so... Just so you know, we danced, we, did, we got it on video, hopefully you don't hold it against us. Um, but as is typical of life in a broken world, our trip was not only filled with joy, but also some sorrow. Uh, my mom, who is a member here, also went on, on the trip with us, uh, and she fell and broke her femur. Uh, so we, we had the challenge of navigating medical care overseas, but by God's grace, she had the surgery to repair the break and is recovering now in a rehab facility in Egypt as we speak. Mom, if you're watching, we love you. Um, would you please pray for healing and wisdom as we figure out how to bring my mom home safely? Several have asked how to help. Um, there may be more tangible ways to help in the days ahead, but for now, we just covet your prayers. Uh, they have been... They, have been being, they are being answered, have been answered, and we know that they will be answered. So thank you. Man, it was great to go to Egypt, but it was good to be back home. All of my family would say that, and we are thankful to be here, and we missed our church family. And we got in just in time to jump in early in the week for Grace Gives, uh, had an incredible week sharing the good news of Jesus verbally and showing the love of Christ tangibly, Today, I want to speak on the message of the Gospel of Grace Gives. The Gospel of Grace Gives. The vision of Grace Gives has been from the beginning, from the Genesis, has been to saturate our community with the Gospel through sharing and serving with our mouth and with our hands. But why should we do this? How important is this Gospel message is what we do worth all the sacrifice and all the effort and all the resources? What is driving us when we tell you we, we will go all out for grace gives? What is driving that? And the answer that, 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 that the only answer we can give is that God's grace drives grace gives. Nothing else. It's not grace plus anything else, it's grace alone that drives what we do. And I want to help us today understand why grace is such an important concept, precisely because people here in our community, and I've been halfway around the world now, and people all over the world are are incredibly confused about the core message of Christianity. When I was in Egypt, my family was, was, got to experience an, an entirely different culture. We were surrounded by millions and millions of people who believe in Islam, the fastest growing religion in the world. Muslims believe that you must submit to Allah God, with the hope that when you stand before him after you die, that hopefully your good will outweigh your bad and you will enter into paradise. That's because in Islam, as in ev- nearly every other religion on the planet, the main goal in, that, in religion is to do good and hopefully be accepted by God or the gods. We took uh, a tour of how they made papyrus and we got to see uh, what ancient Egyptians believed and we saw this scene that's very famous in ancient Egypt where a person after they die goes to the underworld and stands before all the Egyptian gods and Osiris, the god of the underworld, is the ultimate judge and there's 12 other gods who are judging preliminarily but you get to the final place with Osiris and he judges your heart and the heart of the person is placed on a scale and the other side of the scale is a feather. And here's the goal, if your heart is lighter than the feather, you may enter into paradise. Could you imagine the pressure, the crushing burden and guilt of wanting to enter into something beautiful, but your heart has to be lighter than a feather. The idea is that being good is what matters most to God. In fact, this is the predominant view of people in America too. Even among self-proclaiming Christians, there is this mindset that if we do good, live a good life, then God will have to accept us into heaven. We have lots of conversations in our own community during Grace Gives and throughout the year. And we ask people all the time, do you think you will go to heaven after you die? And most people say yes. And when you ask them why, they say, well, I've been a good person. I certainly haven't done as much bad things as so-and-so. The thought is, good people go to heaven. And my guess is you have co-workers and neighbors and friends who hold to this view that good people go to heaven and bad people don't. And on one level, let me just acknowledge, it makes sense why so many people would hold this view. It seems like a fair system, doesn't it? Right? In every facet of our society, in government, in our law, in our workplaces, even in our homes, there's a system of rewards and punishment. If you are good, you're rewarded. And if you're, pu- if you're bad, you are punished. That's how the world works. And so it makes sense that, that, that you would transfer that mentality to religion. There's also this mentality that, look, if people believe that it, their eternity ha- hangs on or hinges on how good they are, then it will motivate them to be good and to transform our society, right? Right? If you tell people you better be good and God will accept you, it'll help society. We don't want people running around like maniacs. We want to keep them under the idea that, oh, I better be a good parent. Uh, It'll create better neighbors. And if they think they got to be good, they'll be better politicians. Well, maybe not that, but at least we'll be better neighbors and employees, you know, better parents. It's not hard to see why this view is popular. And yet we have to think critically. Anything worth believing is worth questioning. And if you hold to this view, or if you think about this view, it's incredibly problematic. There's a number of problems. And I, uh, here's the main one. Let me boil it down to the main problem with this view. If being good is what it takes to go to heaven or to be with God, then how good is good enough? There's lots of other problems, and we we can talk it privately, but this is the crux of the issue. How good is good enough? Is it your definition of good? Is it my definition of good? Is it good defined by Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or Islam? There is no clear standard. And truth be told, look, let's even get personal. Truth be told, even your own standard, even if you have your own standard of being good, Let's, let's be honest, we don't even live up to our own standards, do we? Let alone a God. You might say, well, the Bible gives us instructions on how to be good, but if the Bible is your guide, if the Bible shapes your belief systems, then I must tell you that if you read the Bible, you will find it does give us a standard, and according to that standard, nobody is good enough to get into heaven. And that might sound like bad news. And you've already heard it in what we've read from God's Word during this service. But I want to encourage you today. This is actually very good news that good people don't go to heaven. And I want to show you how Christianity offers a different paradigm altogether. And that God accepts us by His grace, not by being good. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Here's the first lesson from this passage. Nobody is good enough to deserve eternal life. The first three verses of Ephesians 2 are a comprehensive picture of the human condition apart from God. Apart from Christ. Notice Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice he says, we all walked in them. Verse 3, this is how we all once lived and like the rest of mankind. This is all-inclusive. The most accurate description of the human condition apart from God through his son, Jesus Christ, is that we are spiritually dead. And it goes back to Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve, the first humans who hadn't sinned yet, they they were innocent. And God said, here are the boundaries. And here's what it looks like to honor me and trust me and to live in a relationship with me. But if you do this, if you eat of this fruit, if you disobey, you will surely die. And that is the condition we have lived in ever since. You see, sin, what the Bible calls sin, what we as Christians talk about sin, it doesn't just make us sick, it makes us spiritually dead. You see, if you're sick, you can do something about it. Often if you're sick, you can find a doctor. How do I help treat this particular ailment? You can research the problem. You may take a medication. You might have surgery. You might do something. You change your diet. There are things you can do. There are courses of actions if you're sick. But we're not just sick spiritually. If that were true, we could just do something and try to get better. No, we are dead spiritually, and we can't do anything to change that which means we need a, a force outside of us to intervene. We need a God, the God who, who is and who exists, to come and raise us to new life. And unless you recognize this, you will remain spiritually dead. The word for sin here is the word to miss the mark, which means we don't measure up. According to the Bible, nobody qualifies as good and, and look, it, notice how he says, we don't just dabble in sin. It's, Paul doesn't say, you, you guys used to sin a little bit here and there. He says, we walked in it, verse 2. We, follow, we were following the way of the world. Verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body. The idea by these words, walk, follow, carry. The idea behind these words is that we were mastered or controlled by something. Paul is saying we were being controlled by sin. Sin is our master. Look, the default nature, human nature, is to be self-centered. This is what drives and controls us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it this way. He says, our nature is, is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. What does it mean to be a sinner? Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, illustrates it this way. He said, our heart is like a computer and it's running 24-7. And what is it doing? It's analyzing everything it sees and feels and experiences. And the core question that this computer is programmed to answer is this. What's in it for me? what's in it for me? And we got all this data coming in and all the experiences and everything we're going through and we're trying to answer that question. We're, all, we're analyzing it to, to understand how will this benefit my glory, my comfort, my pleasure, my goals, my interests. That's why the essence of sin is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness can make you very evil the great tyrants of history were all evil because they were incredibly self-centered and we can do some horrible things mean things we can be very cruel because we're self-centered can't we but here's the and we know that those are that's the empirically obvious evidence that we're self-centered and we're cruel and mean to one another and it's obvious just turn on the news or just look at your facebook feed you want to be discouraged? Go to your Facebook feed. But here's the, here's the uncomfortable and overlooked truth about, being, about self-centeredness. Yes, self-centeredness can make you very cruel or mean or evil, but self-centeredness can also make you very moral. If you struggle with your identity, if you struggle with va- your value, if you, struggle, if you desperately uh, long to feel good about yourself, there's no way, better way to feel good about yourself than being a good and moral person. The longing to feel good about yourself can drive you to be the best mother or the best father you can be, the best employee, the best neighbor, or even the best Christian that you can be. But if the motivation for you to do any of those things is for you to feel good about yourself, to make yourself feel valued, you're still doing it for you. Do you see that? Self-centeredness can make us very moral people. And you know how I can prove this? Here's an example. In, In marriage, how do you react when things don't go your way in general? How you react shows why you're doing what you're doing. Let's say you're trying to show love and respect to your spouse, and you think you're doing pretty well, you think you're feeling good, right? Your spouse notices the ways in which you're caring for them and and thinking about them, but then they mess up. They do something wrong, they say something, they don't follow through, or whatever, and you get angry, right? You can't believe that after all you do, how could they be so inconsiderate? And then you have to ask so, why were you doing those things in the first place? Was it for your spouse or was it for you? That's self-centeredness. This is the condition of the human heart apart from God, spiritually dead, enslaved to sin. That's the bad news. Good people don't go to heaven because no one is good enough. Look, that doesn't mean we are incapable of doing good. Good. Right? Please don't hear, all oh, Christians, you, know, you say everyone is as evil as they ever can be. No, we're not saying that. There are some people that are doing horribly evil things. We're not saying you're as evil as the worst criminal. We're not saying you can't do good. God gives good gifts to us, and we can do incredible good in this world. It's the idea when we say no one is good, we mean everyone is equally spiritually dead in the eyes of God. That's what we mean. So what do we do? what do we do with this problem should we try really hard to outweigh our good with our bad is that what we should do that's what most people in the world try to do we even see it in our stories I rewatched the movie Guardians of the Galaxy recently and you know it's a fun movie and it's about these bunch of misfits and they get together and they end up saving the galaxy from evil but at one point, the main character uh, looks at all the other misfits and says, Look, we're all losers. Right? And, they're like, I know, I know. What are we but he says, Look, if we can stop this evil, if we can do this together, we can be somebodies. And they say, Yes, yes, and there's a beautiful lesson of them, teamwork, and like, they're stronger as a team. That's great and all, but, but they're, what are they trying to do? They're trying to be driven by something that will make them a somebody because they think if they're good can outweigh their bad, then they will be something. So many people are trying to do good in order to right the wrongs they've done or feel like they aren't a failure. Maybe the good or outweigh the bad, but the reality is none of us can change our condition, we are dead spiritually, and only God can do something about that condition, and the good news is He has. Look at verses 4 to 7. This is lesson number two. God's grace declares us good through new life in Jesus. Verse 4 says this, but God, look, as soon as you add God into the equation, everything changes. But God, maybe two of the most important words in the New Testament, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Dead people can't make themselves alive. We need a supernatural power to raise us from the dead and guess who has that power? God. God has the power to raise the dead. And notice the language, God being rich in mercy. The great love, the mega love with which he loved us. And the grace. Look, what is he saying? He's saying God didn't have to do this, but he chose to do it. That's why we know it's grace. It's undeserved, unmerited, unearned. Look, when we were at our worst, God gave us his best. He didn't wait for us to clean up our room and say, okay, I approve of you. Okay, now I accept you. No, the house was in, was in shambles. We're all like the prodigal son, right? We make a total mess of things. We offend God. We deny God. We go out acting like we can be God and we make a mess of life and then we come back and we realize the mess we made that we have nothing in ourselves and what does the Father do? He absorbs all of the losses that we took and he forgives us and then he welcomes us back home and then he even throws a party. That's grace. What does God do in his great love for us? It says in verse five, he makes us to alive together with Christ. What does that mean? It means God raised us up spiritually. Now, we were dead spiritually. He spiritually raises us up to new life. That's called the new birth. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. He doesn't mean physically. He means spiritually born to new life. That's what God does through his son, Jesus. Raises us up spiritually so that one day he will raise us up physically again. And we just sang that in the song. We know how the story ends. We will be with him again. Not only that, Paul says we we get to be seated with Christ, in the seat of honor with him. We go from being enemies to beloved sons and daughters. And because we are united with Christ, his position of honor becomes our position of honor. I don't deserve to sit at the right hand of God, but Jesus does, and Jesus says, you get to sit right with me. And not just me, everyone, all of us, We get to sit at the right hand of the Father. Do you see it? When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and receive his eternal life, you become united to Christ and now God sees you as he sees his own son. God honors and accepts you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. But look, we have to feel the weight of this. This grace offered to us is a costly grace. And by costly, I mean costly to God. If the essence of sin is us putting ourselves where only God deserves to be, right? We put ourselves on the throne of our hearts. That's self-centeredness, right? We, the essence of sin is us putting ourselves where God deserves to be. Then we need to understand the opposite of that. The essence of grace is God himself putting Himself, where we deserved to be, and that's on the cross. You see, God is so selfless to the point of giving His own life for us. Second Corinthians five twenty one: God made Jesus, who knew no sin, He was perfect, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you know why God is able to give us so much that we don't deserve? Do you know why he's able to elevate us to a place of honor, give us the sense of sonship and daughtership, wipe all our sins away, make dead alive? You know how he's able to do that? It's because Jesus took everything that we did deserve. Remember that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and the punishment for sin is death. That's why Jesus took our death, both physically on the cross and spiritually on the cross, did Jesus ever complain about his physical pain? No. It was excruciating. Don't don't get me wrong. It was horrific. We we, we can't even fathom the torture that was the Roman cross, but he never complained about it. He endured it. Why? Because the greater torture was the spiritual death he experienced. The cry of agony on the cross is when the Father, in some mysterious way, turns away from the Son, and the Son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost everything because of my guilt, my sin, my shame, and yours. And you have to feel the weight of that sacrifice. You can't understand grace until you feel the weight of what Jesus did. Do you see God giving you selfless love by going to the cross? That Jesus takes our place. He takes everything he doesn't deserve so that he could give you everything that you don't deserve. That's what's so incredible about the cross. It's not that you get a bill. Look, we, we say grace is free, right? A free car wash, that's cool, that's great. It, it, is, it makes an impact, it does. But look, just by saying it's free doesn't mean it's, it's, it's like so valuable. Look, I like going to conferences and they give away these free bags with all kinds of freebies in it. I love that. Ask the other pastors and my wife, they hate that about me. But I'll grab, oh, that's free? Oh, great, great, great. Everything free? Anything free I'll take. Please don't come to my home with free stuff. that We get enough, but, but you know, I love free stuff. But just because it's free doesn't mean it's valuable. Those little trinkets end up in the trash days later. No. No, it's not, like, it's not like we get a bill at the restaurant and God pays the bill for us. Like, I got this one. That's great. No, we had a bill that we couldn't pay. We had a bill that means we're doomed. The judge was about to throw the book at us. Forever. Forever. And that's when Jesus steps in and says, I'll pay it. The whole thing. For everyone. Do you see how incredible grace is? Do you see how beautiful grace is? The great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. This is what Paul is describing when he says God being rich in mercy and the great love with which he loved us. Do not for a second think God had to do it. Someone twisted his arm or God, you know, he's like a judge only. No, he's a judge, but he's also a father. How do we receive this grace? Verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift. Of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only way to be rescued from our spiritually dead condition and our slavery from sin is through faith in God's grace, not by our good works. In other words, trusting that Jesus paid it all on the cross that Jesus was punished for our sins, that he died a death we deserve to die, and that he rose from the dead victoriously so that we could be brought back into the family of God. You are not saved by how good you are or how moral you are. And verse 8 makes it clear. It is the gift of God. The life of a Christian is one where you see everything you have from the very salvation to the very breath you take as a gift from God. That the whole package, all of our salvation, all of our being brought to new life, our union with Christ, even the very faith you have to believe is a gift from God. The Christian life is one where it's meant for us to marvel That you deserved nothing and yet God gave you everything. Do you feel that? Do you you wake up with any sense of awe? Like, but for the grace of God, where would I be? Faith is trusting in this gift. Faith is resting in the gift of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not that good people go to heaven. It's that forgiven people go to heaven. And I say that's good news because, look, here's why it's good news. Because it means anyone can go to heaven. It means the person who lives next to you in the D.C. area can go to heaven. It means the Muslim in Egypt who I'm riding in a cab with has a chance to go to heaven. Every single person on the planet can know this gift, can receive this gift. It means no one is above needing God's grace, and no one is too far gone to receive God's grace it is a gift not by works he says so that no one may boast end of verse 9 if any part of our salvation was our effort or our performance then we could boast a little bit we could take some credit for it in ancient times when armies would line up for battle maybe you've seen this in some movies where the both sides are lined up and thousands and tens of thousands of soldiers are out there. And when they would line up for the battle, what would, what would the, the king or the general do? He knows his troops are about to go to their certain death. And so the, the king on his horse or the general will stand before his people in battle. And he has to give a speech. He has to rally the troops. And so the king would start boasting. He would say something like, we are the people of greatest honor. We are fighting for our families. We are fighting for freedom. We're fighting. We have the greater weapons. We have more people than them. We have the stronger soldiers. Our people have lived for thousands of years and we're not going to end now. Look what we've done. And look what we can do together. You see, he's boasting. Why? He's giving them confidence to face something really hard. Right? Boasting is the confidence that that you need to, to say, okay, we can do this. And so why would Paul say that the great thing about the Christian life is that it's the end of boasting or that it removes all boasting? It's because everyone boasts. Everyone's looking around for something to give confidence in life something to give me a sense of confidence, something to give me a sense of worth or value, something to to let me keep going. Some of us look to our family for this, to give my my life a kind of meaning or a boast, We could say, look at my kids, right? At least they're not like so-and-so's kids or whoever's other's kids, right? I can keep going. I'm doing something. Or some will say, look at my career, Right. Look how successful I am in my field. That's a little bit of my boast that that helps me keep going. Some of us look to our salary. Look how rewarded I am for this work. I'm me. I'm valuable. I'm valued. I'm appreciated. Look at my house. Right. Look at what I've been able to do. None of those things are bad. Those aren't bad things, but they're simply things in which we're looking to, to boast in. And we never quite feel like we're doing enough. We never quite feel like we're satisfied. And so we get something else or we try to work up the ladder or try to make our families better. And it requires more and more. And we're scrambling and we're trying to, constantly trying to boast in something. And look, it's exhausting. That's an exhausting way to live. Grace is the end of boasting in yourself. Grace is the end of boasting in yourself. The gospel reminds you, Jesus paid it all. It is finished. So now you and I can say, I did nothing to earn this. It's all a gift. And faith is the act of resting in those truths. So now our only boast as Christians is in the cross of Jesus Christ. When we boast in the cross, we find our value, our identity in Christ alone. And it drives out that self-centeredness. It drives out the self-centeredness that leads to moralism and to immoralism. It drives it out. And all of a sudden, slowly, slowly by His grace, we become a people who can serve others joyfully, not expecting anything in return. And we can love others sacrificially even if it's not appreciated. And we can forgive others rather than holding on to bitterness. And we can even know that the God of the universe, who wiped away my shame and guilt, has totally made me new. Can't I treat others in the same way? Can I offer the same grace that has been extended to me? Our boast is in Jesus Christ alone. Faith is resting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin and trusting that He raises you up to new life. Have you put your faith in Christ alone today? Have you said, I admit that apart from Christ, I am dead in my trespasses and and I I don't want to live. That's not living, right? That's dying and I don't have anything to boast in. So I'm going to turn to Jesus and receive his grace, trust in him, rest in what he did on the cross and his resurrection. That is when you become a Christian. It's not by following the 10 commandments. It's not by coming to church every week. And those are bad things. It's not by following the golden rule. Those are all wonderful things, but they don't get you into heaven. We, we need to be clear. This is the gospel. And this is how you become a Christian and get accepted by God, by grace alone. Lesson number three, and this is just the last couple of thoughts. Short thought. We do good from grace, not for grace. That's verse 10. If we aren't motivated to do good so that God will accept us, as most of the world thinks, why should we do good? Why, what, what is our motivator? Why? Why? Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. That's a rich word. It means a work of art. We are God's masterpiece. Think about what God is saying about a person who's made alive in Christ. He's saying, in a sense, we are God's boast. He says, look what I've created look i took a person who was dead in their sin and i made them alive this is my greatest work this is god's magnum opus just look around incredible isn't it god is the only one who can boast in what he has done because he's the only one who can bring us from death to life michelangelo once was asked What he was doing as he was chipping away as at a at a shapeless rock and he replied i'm liberating an angel from this stone that's what god has done for us he's liberated us he makes us new by grace so we can do good works by grace grace says all my needs are met in christ grace says i have everything i need and when that is true i'm no longer empty I'm no longer um, operating out of desperation to get my identity met in something else. That's why it's a life of faith. I have to keep trusting in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to accomplish this fully, completely. But when I do, as I trust that, when my heart is full with Christ, then I am free to meet the needs of others rather than having to scramble to have my needs met. Then I can be motivated to love and serve whether it's Grace Gives last week or when you go home today. As a Christian, you do good work as an overflow of the good work God has done in you. That is what drives Grace Gives. We do everything free, no strings attached, because God has done a good work in us. How can we not share that freely? That's why we say Grace Gives is not an event, it's a way of life. Church, Let's keep sharing and showing the gospel of grace. Let's pray Father, we thank you that you have cut through all of the confusion, that you have made it abundantly and crystally clear. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder. The vast majority of people in the world are wondering whether the God at the end of life will accept them. Jesus, you came down for this very purpose, to destroy any other hope of attaining your love by giving it freely through your grace. I pray this would become more real to us. I know, Father, that the more you allow us, help us to experience the love of Christ, the unmerited, unrelenting love of Christ, the more this... This fills our hearts as children, as students, as adults, no matter what age, no matter how much money we make, no matter what kind of house we live in, no matter what kind of car we drive, single, married, no matter what a cultural background, Lord, we, I know that the more this becomes real, the more it will change us to reflect your grace, to be agents of grace, not just recipients of grace. And oh Lord, I know that this is what the world needs because this is what we have needed all along. This is what our hearts yearn for. A love and acceptance that that we cannot explain, that we don't have to do anything and we are yours and we're yours forever. How can it be? We still marvel, Lord. Lord. Please work in hearts today. Even now, there might be some here who, who, have, who, who think they're Christians, maybe because they've tried to be a good person or they tried to love Jesus. But Lord, I pray you would become clear if they've not trusted in Jesus alone, that this moment, this day would be a day where they turn to you and receive the greatest gift. Do what only you can do. And Lord, keep doing what only you can do. Keep raising dead people to life. Keep infusing resurrection life into your people. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name, amen.